Welcome to Rehab Within Reach. We are your hosts, Dr. Chrissy Rankin, physical therapist and CrossFit Level 1 coach. And I'm Dr. Sarah Nelson, a physical therapist, and I'm board certified in women's health and lymphedema therapy, and I also hold a master's degree in orthopedic manual therapy. And I'm Dr. Shona Craig. I'm also a physical therapist, a board certified women's health clinical specialist, certified lymphedema therapist, and yoga teacher. We are a collective of women from various backgrounds who support each other and the community around us that have one thing in common, therapy solutions. This podcast will be addressing how the body, mind, and spirit work together to create our current state of being while offering a refreshing approach to how to create harmony within each system. Our treatment philosophy is to empower people through education by combining modern evidence-based practice with our innate primal wisdom in order to promote body literacy and compassion in your personal healing journey. Even though our professional background started in physical therapy, we take an integrative and holistic approach by addressing all systems of the body in order to bridge the gap between the current medical model in the United States and your ability to make autonomous decisions to achieve independence and wellness. This podcast is meant to challenge you to think in ways that may feel uncomfortable at first, but don't worry. Remember, our goal is to provide resources in order for you to make the best decisions for your well-being, which may go against what most of our society suggests is quote-unquote healthy or correct. As a reminder, this podcast does not replace the medical examination, assessment, and plan of care from a licensed medical provider who has seen you personally. Let's get started. Well, we thought we would talk about the state of women's health today um, based on what we see in the clinic. I'm going to be interested when you start your traveling job to if you see something different you know it would be interesting especially well this place is technically like rural um i was like when i was there visiting i said yeah i'm gonna they thought i was a travel nurse which i think is very more much more common than travel pt Mm. no i'm a physical therapist and they're like we have a physical therapy office so um so then of course I was like oh shoot is it even here and it is there um uh but yeah it's definitely a rural town and fisherman town and um it'll be interesting to see um what their ailments are what they feel um is needed in the community um I did hear a physician recently left um that area um so I don't know how many physicians are left on the on the little peninsula anymore, but um, I think in rural areas, it's definitely the lack of availability that seems to be a problem. But then like in Tri-Cities, it seems like there's a lack of availability just because there's not a, like, you know, we're still waiting three months to go see someone um, uh, to even get a primary care appointment. I wonder if it's not a national phenomenon that comes as a conglomeration of more sick people, um, fewer doctors, uh, and insurance uh, making it 
hard to access. Mm -hmm. And also because of like all the rising requirements within medical, providing medical care, electronic medical records and insurance billing and stuff like doctors that might have stayed in the profession longer are leaving. Oh, yeah. And that's creating a, sh a shortage. Yeah. Uh, so people are definitely sicker too. Um, there was an article my husband shared with me from, I think it's the Washington Post. And I am going to look this up. Weathering syndrome. I think that was the name of it. This person. Um, yeah. The weathering hypothesis was proposed to account for early health deterioration. I can't say it today. <laughs> early health deterioration as a result of cumulative exposure to experiences of social, economic, and political adversity. Wow. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And a lady wrote a book about it, um, Arlene Ger Geronimus. She's a public health professor. Um, it, it, especially speaking of marginalized people, um, the the how the the wealth disparity is starting to create a health disparity and education disparity. Um, and I know I said we're going to talk about women's health, <laughs> um, but I you know I guess it's like how is this how are we seeing this impact women yeah and i think it impacts them more that this the studies show that weathering right which is really i i like how we're combining it all because i think people seem to compartmentalize um social justice things health uh societal expectations and uh people of color or marginalized people and mm -hmm. it means that everyone's kind of talking about it in their own separate lens and hearing that there is a term that kind of combines it all I think is wonderful and because of that weathering it unfortunately at least in America um, affects people of color and and marginalized people way higher than it does um, the country majority, which is white people, so, um, and men. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's hard. It's hard to be um, a woman in this, um, in this climate right now. So we could look at it <clears throat> through the decades of life and then, um, talk about talk about each of them briefly, or if it happens, we'll, we'll just bleed into another podcast. But I feel like the 10, 10 to twenty year olds we're seeing early menstruation, um, dysmenorrhea, yeah. lots of pain around that process. Um, not even helping young women with the process of menstruation and having it become regular, but like putting them on birth control so quickly. Yeah. So, and then um, the birth years. So if we say 
20 to 30, and I know women will give birth after that, that um, the whole way of giving birth is becoming fraught with problems. Mm -hmm. Um, The third is so there's, if we say 30 to 50, which, so there's crossover there with birth, but that 35, 40 to 50 is moving towards menopause. We do nothing to help women with that, but that's getting better. I do think like, um, but that's also um, where I see the roots of disease take hold because we don't address it earlier. And then, you know, fifties to sixties is then where we see, Um, I think there's side effects of menopause that haven't been dealt with. So they create things like osteoarthritis. um, Osteoporosis. Yes. And Uh, cardiac disease. Yeah. And um, so a person will go in and get treated for knee arthritis when it's they're they're presenting with a, a whole slew of things that don't get addressed but they'll inject their knee with something yeah so and that would even say after you said 60 was the last one yeah it would be um like isolation and um lack of community um in some instances not all instances but you know people start slowing down and they just kind of self-isolate and you know we're seeing that community involvement is just as powerful as nutrition um, in terms of our health. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. Don't leave off that group because how we help um, each other age out and, but, but remain engaged in life. Yeah. Through that process, instead of being written off even further. So we, we could look at what's, happening what do we see happening how did it get there and what do we think could be done about it at you know on our level and our view so if we look at that 10 you know the tens 20s which the onset of menstruation the the problems as i said that i'm seeing are these like um the dysmenorrhea Early, yeah. early menstruation. And dysmenorrhea um, for people out there is painful uh, periods and really heavy periods and un- irregular periods. And what's sad about that too is, and I, I, I don't know, I know there's a big debate on in the whole country about what is appropriate age specific, age appropriate sex education, which is also reproductive education, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we can take sex, the sex portion out of it, right? We can take, we can just think of it as what it is, which is ensuring that you have healthy reproduction um, at, and which is healthy menstruation, right? That's in a lot of people call it, consider it to be the, the sixth vital sign, right? Yeah. And for because of that debate is happening we don't even know if people are getting correct education on what even a menstrual cycle is 
So I feel it's like before you start giving birth control to somebody, which definitely when I've, especially when I've talked to younger ladies about their periods, it's like, oh, they'll just put me on birth control and that helps my periods. And it's like, well, do you even know what the difference between, you know, the follicular, the ovulation, the luteal and the bleeding time? And if you don't, then I don't think we should be on birth control at this point. Let's like know the phases of menstruation first and what to expect before and try to do things to help that situation. And then if we need, if we don't get, we don't have the resources or we um, we don't have support or we um, we tried those things and things don't work out. Okay, then we can see if we can regulate hormones a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and we're never teaching young women how to live in harmony with this normal cycle yeah. of their body. It's always like demonized and it's the worst they never... Um, where, which is really interesting because mine are great, you know, like they, and I, and I, it's not necessarily like I want to be on my period all the time. Um, it's, it's just like, I don't fear it, um, because it's easy and manageable and, um, but I definitely did a lot of work to get to that point. Right. Um, and I, thankfully don't have other diagnoses that would make it more difficult. Um, so especially with people with um, PCOS or endometriosis, like yeah, that's definitely going to need more clinical things. That's going to need some form of hormonal control, especially PCOS. Um, Polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yep. Um, and it's really interesting that people are kind of even thinking PCOS is almost as intersex. Um because of um, how much testosterone um, these people have um, that, you know, it's, or should we consider people with um, PCOS in some form of the intersex grouping um, because it has so much more extra things that we need to be concerned about? Well, that's, this is like a a off the side data point. came into my awareness that um, transgender people have a higher rate of hypermobility syndrome, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and endometriosis than the general population. That is, I, because I've also heard that they're, especially with the hypermobility and um, neurodivergency, so like ADHD, um, ADD, autism, um, that all seems to also go together as well, um, which is fascinating. Which to me is like, is something going on here that, you know, that is then manifesting in sexual expressions or gender expressions or were the gender expressions always there and these uh, things, um, yeah, are, yeah. are the, I don't, I don't know, but good questions to ask, I guess. Too. Absolutely, and we're and we're definitely not suggesting like there's a chicken and the egg situation where one starts the other or or anything like that. It just is like, you know, I think people in the medical world truly understand that gender is a spectrum and sex is a spectrum too. Um, 
like there it's not just two sexes either there's a very wide variety of of biological sexes as well or at least x you know the of the xy chromosome situation Mm -hmm. and is there a grouping of evolutionary ways of gender and sex and um hypermobility and neurodivergency it's a great question to see what if there's a common thread between it all yeah yeah you you know and um that when people are not trained in the medical field their first reaction to what you just said might be then it's going to come from maybe their religious training or you know their cultural training or whatever and they might um be offended even by oh yeah statement that that there's this diversity but what the, the reason why medical training helps to change that view is because there is so many sexual variations that can occur I, sure. I don't have the statistic but it's it's an anatomical um, genetic fact that there's all this variety and, oh, that's, and that's what and I said earlier about intersex and that is what intersex means is diversity between the XX chromosome and XY chromosome um, and for everybody else XX is what is typically female anatomy and XY is typical male anatomy so one in a hundred people which I mean that's a lot <laughs> it's um, two yeah two per one to two people per 100 people so next time that you're at a at a sporting event uh sitting in the stands right um (laughs) you know in each section there might be one or two people that are intersex and you would most likely never know yeah so at least now we're trying to give room for people for those expressions and that you know if we're talking about this age group 10 to 20, this is where some of that is going to, they're going to start noticing that within themselves. Um, But I guess also when we're having some of these young people come to us with their um, painful periods and um, what almost looks like inflammatory conditions or autoimmune conditions, these other things um, with um, gender expression might be there too. So, uh, I think our role is to help people develop strategies to live their best life, to feel their best. Um, so how did you, because um, periods should be um, pain-free, about three to five days of bleeding. And how did you get to that point? Sure. So I think... Um just genetically I think I started off with a good cycle um and I I know that sounds maybe uh, weird um so my mom had endometriosis and even though I say had I mean she had a hysterectomy um so technically does she have it anymore I don't know but I say yes because there's I'm sure endometrial tissue, you know, in many places. Um, And so it was really um, 
hammered into my head at an early age, um, especially because I was also developing early, um, that I need to make sure that if I have endometriosis or what I think it could be endometriosis that I tell my mom, um, because, you know, just like a lot of people who have endometriosis, just a terrible time with a menstruation cycle. And so, um, uh, I thankfully just off the bat, I, I do not have endometriosis and even to this day, my mom still asks me if I have, how are my cycles and, wow. and you know, they're great. So, um, I was educated really early about what the menstrual cycle was and, um, what to look out for. So that helped. Um, and then when I was in my mid twenties, uh, my cycles started to get a little wonky, um, a little bit more painful, a little bit more heavy, um, not as consistent. Um, I always have at least one a month, but it would range between like 27 days to like 34 days. So it wasn't quite on, or or even at one point, I think it was like every three weeks too. So it was kind of getting a little erratic. And partly that was due to, um, I chose at the time um, to have the copper IUD um, method for birth control, uh, which that increases a localized inflammation inside the uterus, which thickens the lining of the uterus, which in turn then um, that's how it stops pregnancy. Um, And, but that also creates uh, uh, heavy periods, um, can also cause, um, pain. Um, so with that, um, things did become a little irregular and I found that my, the ratio between estrogen and progesterone was off. Um, even though if you took them separate, they would be considered normal, but when you put the ratio together, there was an estrogen dominance. Um, so which can happen due to nutrition, stress, um, environments, um, products that you're using. Um, so after that, I did use some, uh, progesterone supplementation, um, that was prescribed by a physician, um, that I used, uh, during the, uh, luteal phase of my period, uh, which is the end of your period. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used that for about five months. Um, I shouldn't say period, the end of your cycle, menstrual cycle. Um, the right this the week before bleeding time is your or the two weeks before your bleeding time is your luteal phase. So the last week of that I took progesterone and I improved my stress management. I um stopped using some products um that potentially could increase uh estrogen dominance. Um, and all of that, um, and then, uh, and all of that was great. And I still had the IUD for another two years. And then in 2021, um, or no, 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 in 2022, I took the IUD out and I was really mindful about making sure that I did whatever I could in tracking to make sure that, um, my cycles, uh, came back to normal and they have there was a lot in there yeah there is a lot in there yeah Yeah. um like I think if do people understand that there are products we use that can increase estrogen in the body 
Yeah, and that could be um, uh, lotions and body wash. It could be um, shampoo and conditioner. It could be perfume. It could be makeup um, mm-hmm. in terms of like what we're putting on our body. And I the I think the last time I've worn makeup since in the past two years is on my wedding day. <laughs> so um, I don't really wear makeup anyway. Um, and also like plastics can. Um, so I made sure that all of my Tupperware was glass. Mm. Uh, I haven't quite made the switch yet in um, investing in some higher end pots and pans that are like non, uh, not the nonstick kind. Um, people are suggesting that the nonstick pots and pans um can be um estrogen dominant or uh, dominators or disruptors um and at the same time as you're saying this like you need resources in order to be able to access those products and um be able to um buy those things and um and yeah so that's definitely something that we can't deny Mm-hmm. Um, and those are called xenoestrogens so people can that's x-e-n-o estrogens so if there you can google and find lists of that stuff out there um i i was thinking how this you know that weathering hypothesis of excess stress in our environment where that comes from um that just the excess stimulus um, coming from life in general. I I probably have said this before that, uh, okay, so when I was growing up, when a store was open late, that was 7 p.m. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Yeah. And now it's midnight or 24 hours. Yeah. And the TV had this, it, they would all go off at 11 or midnight. And there'd be no programming on. Um, but now you have the chance for constant stimulation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, social media input, looking at phones or computer screens. Um, just you have to decide to turn it off. The other thing I, I notice is like that they'll hold sports um, um, practices late in the evening like they'll have kids out playing um just so they can get field time at 7 30 mm-hmm. at night and and the body should be like slowing down to go to bed by eight or nine mm-hmm. no matter how old you are yeah. <laughs> um that is a really common thing in um in especially like that 10 to 20 year old age because there are a lot of people who participate in sports and I remember um when I was coaching that I I was like so happy when everyone could start driving um because then you don't have to then plan practices around parents work schedules uh Mm -hmm. we could then especially in the summertime um we could have practice earlier uh because uh they could all drive they were out of school and they could all drive um and so I do remember that that was a, a, a benefit um, 
but yeah, it is amazing that I see, you know, even like eight, nine, ten year olds um, out on practice, you know, at t- at eight o'clock plus that night. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Um, and then um, so that would also imply light exposure yep. outside of the normal range, which would be what the sun does is the normal range that the body has developed on. Um, there may might be something in the food. I'm biased towards that way that we're, you know, what we are, the way food is sold, um, that we're eating things that we haven't eaten in generations past. And we don't really know how those are affecting the body. Yeah. Um, so, um, those are all things that may be contributing to this, but nothing has clearly been identified as the cause for why girls are having early menstruation or for all the painful menstruation that's going on. But those are certainly, a lot of those are things that a person could change themselves. Yeah. And I think that's where we come in in physical therapy is to help people identify where what's happening in their life what's modifiable and how they could do that one step at a time yeah and i think it's what's also interesting too it, you know we have there's also the school lunch debate uh-huh. <laughs> um, it is actually really sad about how much politicized our children are at this moment right now in time um but yeah like there's you know, we need, we need to feed our children. Um, there's a, a ton of, there are millions of children, unfortunately, who are suffering from uh, malnutrition and, and hunger um, because they don't have access to food. So school is where they get uh, their, their food. Um, and just because we don't, fund that portion of education as great as we should you know lunches aren't necessarily the best and um and also that requires resources outside like if you want to pack your own lunch or if you want to bring more food or to supplement what you're getting at school that also creates in difficulties because especially right now food prices are and grocery prices are extremely expensive well, even for those families who have enough money to buy food, the children might go for the stuff that, yeah, uh, t- that yeah, tastes better. <laughs> yeah, well, has an immediate gratification in the mouth with sugar, fat, and salt. Yeah, that's a better way to put it. <laughs> we um, there's a book about the end of overeating, and the guy talks about how food marketing realized that if you put sugar, fat, and salt, or salt in the food, people are going to eat more of it because it triggers our neurology to want that. And kids are all over that. Yeah, for sure. So that, so even if the parent wants the kid to eat more vegetables and has the means to do it, they might not always, even my, one of my grandsons loves kale, (laughs) but he's careful not to say that, that in certain circles Mm. because he'll get made fun of for liking kale. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so if we move on to the group, <clears throat> the age age group of giving birth, so that'd be like probably 20 to 40, right? I mean, it can go 20 to 50, but <clears throat> um, that's an outlier, right? <laughs> yeah, true. Um, what's happening for women around birth? <clears throat> Um, um, I swallowed a frog. <laughs> what I'm seeing, um, well, like we have three hospitals in this community. One of them quit delivering babies. And I'm assuming it's because you, when, if you're going to have a, a OB floor, you have to staff it 24 seven. It's potentially that that hospital might have had the, some of the healthiest deliver, deliveries. So nobody, fewer people needed C-section, delivered mm -hmm. vaginally. There's no money in that. Yeah. And, uh, and so they closed it. Wow. It was too expensive. And that's happening in more yeah. rural settings. Yes. And it's and it's fascinating that you say that because like the Tri Cities is over three hundred thousand people, which is not rural, right? I mean, the surrounding areas would be considered rural, but the hub is the Tri Cities, and mm -hmm. the fact that one the hospital in one town, um, and which is also, I wonder if there's some cultural things happening there um uh that that stopped um giving birth and or provide help providing birth services and that's yeah it's, it's very frustrating yeah well and they've probably figured well the other two hospitals can cover it so yeah. um we are risk intolerant around birth we think if anything goes wrong Someone should be punished for that. Somebody could have prevented something going wrong. And so doctors, I haven't looked recently, but OBGYNs have some of the highest um, malpractice insurance rates. Yeah. Um, so if anything carries a heightened risk, they want to do C-section. Yeah. And um, so... For instance, breach deliveries, mm -hmm. they don't do them. Yeah. They, they, so they have a C-section. That is how they will deliver those babies. Yeah, and I just did a, um, a webinar with evidence-based birth about the evidence regarding breach vaginal delivery and breach um, cesarean delivery. Mm -hmm. And... Um, they're like, we tend to look at the statistics because like the, the tram, the study, um, uh, no breach, the, uh, there was a study, um, that was done in the late 19 or 1990s um 
it was called prompt uh p-r-o-m-p-t um study and it it showed that statistically comparing a vaginal delivery breach versus a planned cesarean of breach presentation that um, there was a higher risk of risk and or higher difficulties with the vaginal one um and they they stopped the study early because they thought they had enough um data but before i talk about the rest of it um it's really interesting that they always kind of talk about how it takes 15 to 17 years for research to become common practice um and in the medical field and for after that study came out it was like almost instantaneous when everyone stopped doing um vaginal breach deliveries um and if you really look at the the data um they actually didn't keep any um they didn't stick with the inclusion criteria really well so there had people in the study that weren't appropriate um they actually added in people who had um who had a stillborn births um before even the study began so they added the that statistic into the study um and so and also they were talking about how well we shouldn't be comparing uh breach vaginal delivery and breach planned cesarean delivery we should compare breach vaginal delivery and and normal head down position vaginal delivery versus the other two um because those are actually more closely related to each other than the vaginal delivery and cesarean um and so there is if you really look at systematic reviews mm-hmm. um that the risk of um adverse events in a vaginal breach delivery is about the same as uh as a it's about the same than everything else so um there really is no um but we but the problem now is that physicians and midwives aren't taught how to do that um to deliver that way and so then you don't even have a choice then at some point um to have a vaginal breach delivery um and that's the real problem is not being able to have the choice anymore um is significant yeah that's amazing to me that we have a you know a generation of doctors who don't know how to do a type of delivery mm-hmm. so we've lost and we've lost a skill yeah um that um in my recent reading i saw one where planned c-sections had a worse outcome rate than than emergency c-sections emergency being that the woman goes into labor and at some point they realize they better do a c-section those mm-hmm. had a better outcome than the planned c-section wow yeah so and c-section has a higher mortality risk a death risk to the mother yep. than vaginal delivery Yep. And that was something in that webinar too, that they talked about of, I liked how they broke down the, um, there's like the immediate 
risks the um that's during the childbirth or immediately after versus the prolonged um risks um and they were talking about how um like a breech vaginal delivery may be more um have a more immediate risks at the end of childbirth um versus c-section both planned and unplanned um those have longer lasting risks um down the road in terms of um scarring and um hemorrhaging and um postpartum depression um, and which then can affect ability of delivering more children um, in the end, if that's something that they choose to do. So, um, yeah, I, I think in my practice, I see kind of lifelong uh, problems that come from, especially repeated C sections or repeated abdominal surgeries. Yeah, the, the chronic swelling it creates, setting up a person for autoimmune issues. <clears throat> Um, so, um, and I think something to highlight here, because we started talking about this before we hit record is that it wasn't until 1993 that, uh, researchers were mandated to put women in clinical trials, um, or in research in general, um, when they were talking about healthcare. Um, and that's because they chose men to do that, um, one, because a lot of research is done at universities and in the earlier days, there was more men present in universities than women. And now that's not the case anymore. Um, but also everyone thought, well, it's really hard to regulate a women's cycle um, to do research on them because there's too many variables that we can't understand. So we'll just choose men because they have um, they don't have a cycle and they have even hormones. And so we don't have to necessarily we'll just do everything on them so mm -hmm. that we and then we can apply that information to women. Um, and so now we're knowing that that's not the case. So only 30 years ago, was it even common or that it was mandated for researchers to use women in their research um and here's a here's an ayurvedic perspective on research you you know the way that i i see um western science approaching research is what works for everyone what's the best thing for everyone and in ayurveda it's never going to be like that because each individual is going to have a a unique composition. They're going to have a unique imbalance at a certain time of the year um, under certain circumstances. So there is never going to be one size fits all. You have to evaluate the individual and where they're at and, and then adapt the things that, that we can for that individual. So, um, uh, you know, maybe we're in the mess we're in with birth in the United States because of using these. It, first of all, like you just said, not having enough research on women and then using really very small amount of studies or to make huge global um, decisions on how things are done. Yep. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, I, you know, what can women do to, um, if they're in this, um, place in their life of having children one so one thing i see is that younger women tend to be uh wanting to listen to authority which i mean okay it's it's good we want to we have advisors we count on people to be experts and have sorted through the information and give us good information but we have to do our own research and we have to speak up for ourselves um, and not just do something that someone told us to do because they said it. We have to ask why. And um, I, I, I see that. Um, mm-hmm. Although that comes with risk because when women ask for what they want, um, they're called bitches or <laughs> you're right there. Yeah. Um, no one wants to work with them because they're speaking up. Yeah, they're bossy. They're um, hysterical. Thank um, you. Yeah, yeah those all of those things. And I think it's really important to also discern, like, we want, it's all about choice, right? Like, we talk about this all the time. Like, and what, saying it one time is never enough. Like, you know, we're advocating for choice. And people, we live now in a healthcare system that choice is is being taken away from and um and but what's also what we're finding now in our culture is when the multiple es- experts and multiple situations are given out um that people are now not um believing in experts um or they um, are being more skeptical, which I think us um, being inquisitive and asking questions is super, super important. Um, and at the same time, we need to make sure those sources are appropriate and um, and that we are choosing things that um, is the betterment of ourselves and our community. Um, so it is, it's, it's a trippy, it's a tricky slope and it's, it's really interesting to see how, um, and I don't know what is happening else in the other parts of the world. Um, but definitely here in America, there is, uh, some divide between, um, who's an expert and what advice should I, uh, be looking into, um, and going from there. And I think in terms of specifically with, uh, with in America here, I think what's really fascinating is, um, how it's particularly for, uh, obstetricial care and gynecological care that the American college of obstetricians and gynecologists, which is the ACOG, they actually have like great information on their website and you can look up many things, and what's interesting is that there are many obstetricians and gynecologists who are not following the recommendations of what the ACOG has. And the ACOG like specifically says that the choice, like having informed consent and informed choice is the most important thing for a person to have during their pregnancy in any gynecological situation. And the fact that that's not happening, you know, in 
um, traditional um, uh, OBGYN care is really fascinating that even people aren't, or OBGYNs aren't even following what ACOG recommends, which people usually say it's all the way around, right? That the higher uh, governing body is out of touch and they aren't um, at the forefront of informed choice and, and informed consent. Um, but it seems to be the opposite here. Yeah. Um, oh, man. My thought ran away. But I liked what you were saying. Um, oh, I know what it was. We have had some, you know, moms recently who, like, for instance, they would like to do a home birth. But because of a, you know, they maybe they had a C-section. Mm. The first, they don't want, no one will do a home birth with them. The risk is too high for that there's a potential for uterine rupture after a um after a c-section however vaginal delivery after c-section is safe like the since they've looked at that they realize well that risk is low right um there's some people back to your point about malpractice insurance there's actually like a lot of um, OBs who don't even carry VBAC um, insurance. So then legally they can't, or they're not even covered for it. So then they're not even giving you a choice to be able to have a VBAC, um, which is just, a vaginal birth after cesarean birth. I just like that. Um, uterine rupture is rare, happening in less than 1% of women who tempt a, a trial of labor after cesarean. Wow. Let, so you know, well, we just said that's like one in a hundred. Yeah. Which that's, is... that's a lot. Yeah. Um, comparatively, but it's also not a lot. Um, uh, yeah. So anyway, but that's the kind of risk I think, you know, if we, if we actually had an actual OB in this discussion, they would be like telling us, will you take the risk? Are you going to do that? Yeah. Are yeah. you going to live with that risk um, for the, you know, they're going to do a hundred deliveries and they're going to have to deal with one of them like that. Um, uh, so I, I can't. It, well, it's interesting though, is like the, but we don't like, did you, okay, sorry. I'm like all over the place. Um, so cesarean uh, surgery is the mm-hmm. number one performed surgery in the world, right? Oh, wow. And more than hip replacements and knee replacements, right? Oh, wow. So in that regard, right, when you think about that, um, the risk of complications regarding knee and hip uh, surgeries are relatively high right and that we are still we 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 are and I think this just comes back I guess what the point I'm really trying to make is that we're coming back to we're, we're thinking it's no big deal right and and that these surgeries are inherently have no complications to them because it's just oh it's it's easy peasy kind of a thing but no they're really there really is. And the fact that um, 
like even up to the host in the hospital that immediately patients who have a knee replacement and hip replacement get physical therapy within the first six hours of having getting out of that surgery. Um, but getting occupational or physical therapy after cesarean never happens. Um, I'm in like professional groups that talk about the backlash that a lot of PTs and OTs are getting of even attempting to start um, asking their administration about having automatic referrals for emergency uh, C-sections um, um, or ones that people had to get transfusions because of too much blood loss. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that we're having like pushback from that, despite it being the number one most performed surgery in the world is wild. Like it's, it's absolutely wild. So that's true. You know, one of uh, a therapist friend of mine who had a C-section when she went in for her second baby, then the nurses commented how excellent her scar was and how mobile her scar was because she knew how to work on it. Mm, Yeah, for sure. We could be teaching women how to do that. Um, and, and that's where, I mean, that's the thing to do is to, to get into physical therapy. Um, the, uh, I was just thinking about that weathering hypothesis. What the, the, the woman, this Arlene Geronimus, who first came up with it, she formulated the idea to explain the poor maternal health and birth outcomes for African-American women that she observed in corresponding corresponding with increasing age. So um, p- part of this idea is that there people have dealt with so much high level stress and the wearing down of the body. So someone giving birth at 25 years old, 30 years ago, um, their health was better than the 25 year old today. The 25-year-old today is more like, I don't know, 35-year-old giving birth today or something like that. I That's a made-up number, but maybe it illustrates the point that the wear and tear of our body in from modern lifestyle is aging us. Yeah. Uh, and an aging body is going to have a harder time with the birth process. Mm-hmm. So fitness, you know, and, you know, just getting... Um, which is not just exercise, but it's that getting enough sleep, getting the right food. We all have to fight for that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, so the, the, ne- the next um, age group, I think we're not going to get to all age groups today, but the next one is that, so say 45 to 55, which is, um, or 60, which is the, um, shifting in towards menopause. So menopause is a date. It's one day that is one year after the last period. And I think because of our, um, let's save this for the next episode. Yeah. I want to do, I want to give the age range of menopause just as enough like passion and thoughtfulness as we do for childbirth um Mm -hmm. because I think unfortunately 
um, the that passion for menopause is just not there. Um, Because I remember one time I was talking to a colleague and we were looking at um, all the courses that are available for medical practitioners to learn about health and wellness and fitness for prenatal and postpartum care. But finding educational materials for menopause is like or even getting like specific training and certifications for menopause is just not there. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, and there's a lot of implications of why that's happening. So let's, let's give that age group its own passion. Well, and it's, it's very complex. It's got a lot of parts to it. Yeah. Because because there's been all this buildup in the beginning of life where Um, You know, so we can wrap this up talking about, I think, um, some of the symptoms that show up for women that do not hit medical radar. So a woman will go to the doctor and be saying, hey, why am I gaining weight? Why why do I feel tired all the time? Um, And even, you know, and then they they don't get any help or they feel they don't get any help. And it's not that the, uh, if I give the doctors the benefit of the doubt, it's, it's only because the medical model doesn't start working until you have a problem. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of these younger women are experiencing is, um, you know, disequilibrium in the forces that are driving our physiology. They don't recognize it. Culture doesn't recognize it. Medical system doesn't recognize it. And therefore we don't use the tools that are available to help adjust those things. And to me, that's, you know, the framework of traditional Ayurveda, but you also see those things show up. Um, You know, there's frameworks in functional medicine, you know, and um, well, just even in the fitness world, right? Like I think CrossFit is, tried to do that because they don't even just talk about exercise. They talk about nutrition. Yep. Mm-hmm. And and they were one of the first ones to say, Hey, 20 minute workouts in and out. Yeah. True. Um, True. Not pushing too hard. I think. Yeah. yeah it, it Now there's a shift. I, they definitely were the push too hard. They, I mean, they had a one point, Pukey the clown was um, their mascot for a while. Um, but now we're having a conversation of like, yeah, we need to be also mindful of our physiology and our nervous system and um, pushing hard all the time is not sustainable. So that conversation is happening now, which is great. Yeah. Well, okay. Good topic. Yeah. Menopause. Sounds yeah. great. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Our group tends to have these fantastic discussions and we always ask ourselves why we haven't recorded any of them. And now here we are. If you are interested in more content, we'll be releasing new episodes every other Monday. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Therapy Solutions PLLC. That PLLC is super important. This is the Rehab Within Reach podcast, where all are encouraged to experience wholeness and independence. See you soon.